മുംബൈയിൽ നടന്ന ഐ എസ് എൽ താരലേലത്തിനു ശേഷമായിരുന്നു ബ്ലാസ്റ്റേഴ്സിന്റെ പുതിയ കോച്ചിന്റെ കേരളത്തിലേക്കുള്ള ആദ്യ വരവ് പ്രണയ് മുലൻസ്റ്റീനെ Our Ramble meets guest this week had the pleasure as a young man of watching the legendary Johan Cruyff and the Ajax and Dutch national teams. His coaching and management has taken him from the Middle East to Denmark to Old Trafford where he was Sir Alex Ferguson's first team coach to Russia to London and Fulham to Israel, India and now assistant to the Australian national team. But of course at the moment because of Covid he's having to do that job from the northwest of England. Renny Moonenstein, how are you? I hope you're well in these strange days in which we live. Yes, yes, I'm I'm very well, Mark, but thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I have to say, Renny, first up, I'm very jealous, obviously jealous of your life in football, but particularly I'm four years younger than you, so I don't remember the 1974 World Cup, but you were 10 and the Dutch national team had reached the final. Johan Cruyff was was brilliant and Ajax had won the European Cup 3 years in a row how special was all that rene as a young man it was it was very special mark because it was as you said my first memory really of uh, of football and, and and dutch football and that generation has definitely put holland on the on the map of world football you know you mentioned already johan cruyff but it's funny that if you ask anybody of my generation in holland they would they would name that team you know straight through from from back to front and and in my time as when i was working in qatar as as a manager for uh, al ittihad and al sadd i i was lucky to be joined by wim suebia who played in that great uh, golden ajax team and the dutch national team the the right back you know uh, as everybody refers to stoke football but it was it was a fantastic time and 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 like i said all of people of my generation they will be uh, their heroes rent to break stuurt daar krol op links weg dan komt de voorzet en het kruip is kruip en het goal 2-0 wat een juweel van een doelpunt van Rensenbrink naar krol van krol voor precies op paal en kruip die schitterend scoort en het is 2-0 in de 20ste minuut van de tweede helft waar blijft de herhaling was Johan Cruijff the most important person in the Netherlands for some time Um I don't know whether he was the most important person but he was definitely one of the most important people that you know people looked up to and he he gave he gave Holland and especially football in Holland a different dimension on on the world stage uh, as everybody knows he had a very he was an exceptional footballer you get always discussions he was the best player in the world and I think if you start having that discussion you do discredit to so many others and Johan Cruyff is one of them at that time football wasn't as broadcasted as it is now now we see you know ronaldo messi mbappe neymar we we see them play every week week in week out at that time that wasn't the case so a lot of people outside holland don't know johan cruyff the way that we do did you realize how special it was rene or be you were 10 in that world cup in 74 uh, we've all been 10 did you not really know did you just think it's football and i'm loving it or did you have an inkling maybe through your parents or the elder generation this is really special what these players what these teams are doing it it, it was mad because i tell you the reason why because uh, in 74 that was when when my dad especially bought a, a color tv just before the world cup <laughs> and uh, and obviously we've seen I've seen quite a few games with with Ajax getting into the world cup uh, of winning winning european cups uh, even like Feyenoord and also so you had that interest so you knew that listen Holland can really feel the really strong national team it was obviously in a neighboring country it was in germany 
uh, I can still remember the final was played um, in the first week of Ju- weekend of July, which in our village is the annual fair. So everybody was up and about. It was all people up and about, and it was obviously busy. But obviously, the result of it losing two one was devastating. I've never seen so many adults cry, and uh, you know it, it, it's a memory that stays with me forever. Did you see the same adults cry four years later when you're fourteen and you lost to Argentina in seventy eight? Yeah, although that was a different setting. You know, there was a lot to do about the the World Cup in seventy eight. Uh, Johan Cruyff wasn't going. Uh, there was a lot of things about political reasons why Holland shouldn't have, shouldn't have attended, but obviously we did miss the best player of Holland at the time. But it was an unbelievable achievement to then still get to the final. And, uh, you know, everybody remembers the, the moment of Robbie Ransombring uh, hitting the post in the last minute of the game. And everybody says afterwards, you know, even if that ball would have gone in, people would have feared if we would have, you know, if, if people and players and staff would have left, you know, the stadium in one piece. But uh, in extra time, again, we lost that game and Holland eventually has carried on to get to three World Cup finals, as we know, 2010 in Spain as well. But for me, number one final, 74, number two, 78. And I think we didn't do ourselves any credit in 2010. Torres is trying to find him. Broken for Fabregas. Now it's Iniesta. This is it. You, you mentioned Feyenoord in, in passing there as well as Ajax. And Feyenoord won the UEFA Cup in 74, managed by Viel Kerver, who had, I know, an enormous impact on you and on football coaching really around the world. I remember the first World Cup I went to in Japan in 2002. Paul Mariner, the former England striker, was over there coaching. And they were coaching the Kerver technique. I mean, it had really uh, had taken root and spread throughout the world. Do you just want to explain to everybody? I mean, they may have heard the term, but exactly what the Kerver technique is. Well, a, a curve, it's obviously a real curve, as you mentioned. Uh, a person, a, a coach from Holland, uh, played played himself in rapid JC in 54, won the championship, went on to be a coach. And when he went on the journey to become a coach, he actually realised that he could organise teams fairly well, defensively set them up, but he couldn't give the team any extra going forward, having any sort of elements in the game that could make the difference. So he started to look at the... You know, the top teams in Holland that always would win the league, like Ajax, like Feyenoord, who had obviously Van Hanegem, Moulin, Cruyff uh, with Ajax and all them. And he started to analyse those players. Then he looked over the sort of borders and he looked in, in England, where you had George Best and Bobby Charlton. He looked in in in, in uh, Portugal, where you had Eusebio. You knew, you knew about Pele. You knew about all those players. And he started to sort of analyse them. And he came to the conclusion that those players had the individual ability to dominate any one of you one situation on the pitch. And he analysed them to four situations. And that all depends on in what side the defender is really challenging you. You know, whether he's on the side of you, when he's coming at an angle, he's behind you, or in front of you. And he analysed that all those players had certain moves and skills or tricks to dominate those one of you ones. So after his sort of active coaching career, he went away, he went to Indonesia, he went to the Middle East, he went to the UAE, he went to Qatar, and that's where I joined him. Basically, building a coaching method and, and and his main brief was this these are these players Cruyff, Maradona, Eusebio all of them are not a product of a development program they've got that natural ability and they've they've played in the streets and in the parks and they've developed them along the way but it's our obligation as coaches to create an environment where we can teach those skills to all the young kids in the widest and the broadest way so we need to develop coaches 
that can do that, you know. And that's when I joined him in '93. And as he said, it had a massive impact on me. So, are the fundamentals of your coaching approach based on curva techniques? Yeah, it certainly it certainly has, Mark. But there's always it's always and and. If you analyze because what we did on 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 top of analyzing the top players. We analysed the top teams as well. So we went, we analysed all the teams that won the World Cups. That's where the best players operate. European Champions Leagues. We looked at the strongest leagues in the world, you know, the Premier League, the Bundesliga, Spain, whatever. And you find that nucleus of teams that are always up there on top of the mountain. There's always one winner. And if you analyse all those winners, you can extract the qualities that they possess. If you know what the qualities are, you also know as a coach what to develop into a team, and if you then analyse the top players, you know what to develop in an individual. The key is is to put that in a development programme that makes sense, that you offer it in the right way, in the right age, in the right stage. So if you analyse football, which is basically 90% plus, is moving the ball from one player to the next. You know, you keep in possession, you're moving the ball. But it's that 10% when you focus, when you get into 1v1 situations, that really makes the difference. And that's where you strike the balance. So for me, when I came to Manchester United in, in 2001 and later on when I joined the first team, it was I was very much convinced that I knew that if you do add that little bit of an element of unpredictability in the, skill, in the in skills, that makes that 1% to 2% difference that makes a big difference in winning trophies, yes or no. Because I think I'm right in saying you always felt that even the Dutch approach, but obviously the English approach as well, was a bit too prescriptive, which is why I'm interested. You said and, and, because you can have a base which goes, I believe in this basis. If you're English, it tends to be English, although not always. But but the and, and is that unpredictability which you need to graft on to what you know already. Yes, it's it's like a lot of things have, have changed and improved over time, uh, Mark, if you look back to football, how how it has improved over the last, let's say, 50, 60 years. Facilities have gone better. You know, the equipment has gone much better. Obviously, there have been some some major, of major, minor rule changes in certain things. But certain things never, never change. Never change. It will always be two times 45 minutes, unless there's extra time. There will always be two teams of 11 with one goalkeeper on each side and 10 outfield players. There will always be the rules of, of offside and all this. Every team has to defend, have to build up to attack. What hasn't changed is it doesn't matter where you go back all the time to Puskas and Di Stefano and Beckenbauer and Croy. At the end of the day, it's still that element, that 1v1 element. The teams that have players that have that element are, were making a difference then and are still making a difference today. You know, and that, is, and, that is, and that is how it is and that will never change. That's why it's so important. We as coaches look after to making sure that we develop enough players with a, creati- with a technical creativity so that element stays in the game. Otherwise, you're only relying on combination football to create chances and score goals. Can you coach that unpredictability? unpredictability? It sounds a, a, an oxymoron to say you can, because if you could coach it, then it would be predictable. Do you see what I mean? Can you coach any element of it? Yes, because unpredictability comes with options, Mark. <clears throat> if I if I if I teach you, let's say for instance, you're a left winger, and I get you into various one v one situations that you can approach the, the the opponent, and I teach you how to go go past them on the outside, or I go uh, I teach you how to go past on the inside. There's your unpredictability because you've got options. You know what I mean. Plus, then there's a third option: you can go past them 
with making maybe a, a one-two combination or a give-and-go with somebody else. So it's all options. But if you haven't got any skill, then you become predictable because the only thing you can do is pass and run. You work with the very best players around the world, but particularly at Manchester United between 2007 and 2013 when you were Sir Alex's first team coach. What What is the key, Rene, to putting on training sessions that engage and challenge Ronaldo, Giggs, Skulls, players right at the top of their game? If you work individually with them, then it was all about, for me, Mark, the approach of adding something to their game. I would never, ever use the word change. Because as soon as you ask a player, especially an established player, because players always remember, players, every individual, by the way, every individual operates in a comfort zone. That's where confidence comes from. They, they are confident in what they're doing, so they stay in the comfort zone. That's with everybody, so also with players. To, to, to get them to perform better, you sometimes need to pull them out of the comfort zone, but not by saying change, because change means the players go, what, 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 what is it what I'm doing wrong? That's why I always use the word add. And I always used to say individually, listen, Cristiano, or Ryan Giggs, or Darren Fletcher, listen, if we can add this to your game in your position, then it will give you this and this and this and this. So you would show them, you would work on training, then you've had a technology or video analysis in training and games that you could back that up. And when the players see, yeah, it's actually working, fantastic. If you work in a team setting with a whole squad and especially with the players where the demands are that high, the quality is that high, it's all about uh, mainly five things, Mark. It's always making sure that the players understand the purpose of the session, which means like most of the time it was in preparation to the next opponent. So you inform them and then you facilitate. The difference in working at the highest level at Man United is that you have to to find the right balance to give as much responsibility to the players, to empower them. So not the traditional coaching uh, side of it, stop, stand still. Play, they know. They are that good that if you give them the right information, you facilitate the right session, they understand the purpose, then they fill it in. No problem. So purpose is one. Then always make sure you challenge the players. And the challenge can always be anything. It can be making competition. It can be let them solve a tactical problem if what we're going to be up against, anything like that. Then every session revolves around two aspects, uh, quality and intensity. They are interlinked. Those are the most important ones to make sure that the training sessions is functional because if the, the, the intensity is too low, it's not game realistic, so the quality won't be there. If the intensity is too high, People tend to make, players tend to make, uh, they tend to rush things, therefore make decisions. So again, there's no quality. So that's the fine line of coaching. So you've got purpose, challenge, quality and intensity. If those four things are there, players will enjoy the session and they want to come back for more. And that's the most important thing. Because don't forget, Mark, I've always felt that with those players who played two times, most times, three times a week, Ferguson always used to say, listen, we expect a world-class performance from those players. Yeah. When, when, we, when it's our uh, job, it's important that we give them the best world-class support on and off the pitch. And remember, Rene, everything you do in training will manifest itself in the game, good and bad. So we never let any training opportunity go to waste. Never. If you, yes, you had limited time, but make sure you maximise that limited time you know, that you have. And presumably that approach, uh, approach as well maintains a freshness and an excitement about training because sometimes... 
in the football media or a football fan, you hear, oh, players are going training today. They're sometimes in your own mind's eye, well, they're just doing those drills again. They've done them a hundred times. So explaining the way you have means that when they come into training, they have something original, maybe something fresh to attack. Yeah, 100%. I always felt, uh, you know, players do love nothing more than get out there and play. But if they do the same things over and over again every day, then also you sort of subconsciously, you know, the uh, you sort of, they, how to say it, they get bored. And by, by, by feeding them the same thing in, in a different setting, keeps them keeps them uh, keeps them on the toes keeps them alert you know you also keep training their their brains um, and keeps them excited that's what you want you know there's so many different ways that you can train the same things so the same the same messages are coming out but it's but it's slightly different that's where you know uh, it was so good for Manchester United in, in the time of the Ferguson we we were very diverse you know what I mean we were very expansive so to speak and that can only be if you put them in that environment, you know, every single day. And do you think it was very deliberate of Sir Alex to rotate, freshen up his number two, his coaching staff, as it were? Because you came in and he obviously had coaches for Carlos Quiros and Brian Kidd. Everybody would bring something different again, which would just keep the players fresh or on their toes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Obviously, uh, you always have to look at every specific reason why why a number two has moved on or why he's left. Obviously, Carlos Quiroz, in my case, got a great offer. I think it was Real Madrid, Real Madrid at the time. So he couldn't he couldn't uh, let that go. And and obviously, you know, Sir Alec Ferguson could have looked for somebody else, but McPhee and myself were still there. We were very much well aware of what's going on in training. We almost, we sort of carried on with the pre-season. Manager was very happy with what he saw and, and he carried on. And I think that, that is obviously something because he's been there for such a long time. But he, he did say it, it keeps myself fresh, you know, and he, he's always liked to have young people, young people or people that were much younger than him around him because young people have ambition. They've got ideas. Maybe they may be a little bit naive or maybe sometimes a bit inexperienced. But, you know, all in all, it's really beneficial to himself. Rene, when you look at the the managers in the top of the Premier League today, maybe that is the wrong word. We have to look at coaches. Pep Guardiola is clearly a coach. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. He really is intricately involved in what goes on in the training ground. Jurgen Klopp, Gengen pressing. Brendan Rodgers, clearly a coach. Mikel Arteta, a mentor, you know, if you like. Uh, sorry, a protege of Guardiola, if you like. Am I right in thinking that was very different with Sir Alex? He wasn't massive uh, as hands-on day after day on the training ground as maybe today's generation of managers are. Is that fair? It, it was fair when I was there, you know, because he did delegate everything to to myself and to McFeel and to Eric Steele, Tony Strudick in that respect. He was always there. Obviously, he knew what was going on, but he was never he was never really a case of him telling me, listen, I want I want you to do this, I want you to do that. He well knew that we were well well informed in, in, in the sort of thing. Certain principles would never change. Uh, there were certain tactical aspects of the game where I think, well, listen, I think we need to address this and it's good that you you have a work with the players because this is what we could do, uh, can, could do in training. Uh, I'm sure that he was very hands-on when he first joined Manchester United because obviously he was much younger and you want to get your ideas across. Uh, I think that Pep Guardiola, um, Tuchel now with Chelsea, uh, probably Arteta, I think they're much more hands-on coaches than Klopp is. I don't think Klopp, he's there, 
but he's got his staff around him that really do devise the sessions and, and do deliver the sessions. Klopp is more a guy that uh, I think will highlight certain aspects in that training sessions or in certain games, what's important to him. But I think he lets, uh, he lets a lot, uh, he has a lot done by the coaching staff. But is it interesting, Rene, because Lee Dixon's told me this with the Arsenal scenario. For, for seven, eight, nine years, Arsenal and Manchester United were the two teams, both with managers who empowered their players, maybe more than coached their players, if you, if you understand what I'm saying, whereas today's leading managers are very much coaches. It's interesting how football has changed in that sense in 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, it it is is very. I mean, if you look at, for instance, Manchester City under Pep and and Liverpool under uh, under Klopp, uh, taking apart a little bit the the bad spell they're going through at the moment, but the, the last three four years, the the identity and the style of play is very very clear, very clear, and every player knows within their setup in terms of uh, you know build up and attack and defense and transition what the jobs are, very very clearly. The, the Liverpool players know that. And also the uh, uh, the Manchester City players know that. Um, with Sir Alex Ferguson, there were certain uh, aspects of the game that were very, very clear in terms of how we would want to defend, whether we wanted to press very high in numbers or drop in, in a block, whatever it was. Defensively, there were certain basic things that everybody had to do their job. But going forward, and especially in the attacking, you know, in the attacking half, there was far more freedom for the players but far more where, where Sir Alex Ferguson said, listen, use your creativity. You know, you're all good players. We just give you the options, what we think is the best way to break that team down. That's what we show. That's part of the preparation. But then it's for you guys to come up with the right solution because if you don't, you kill the creativity. You know, that's 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 the important thing. You need to show them, but otherwise you create them. With, and if you kill creativity, you, you, you kill unpredictability. He didn't look happy coming forward, Anelka. And he's not happy now because it's red in Russia. This English night in Europe is Manchester United's night. Best in the Premier League. They're best in the Champions League. Thanks to Edwin van der Sar's save. Ronaldo's had a reprieve. And Manchester United's joy is unconfined. They've left Chelsea in second place yet again. And I think, to be fair, I've heard Pep Guardiola say something quite similar to that in the sense that I can coach you and I will coach you and have done very successfully, if you like, 75% of the way up the pitch. The last 25%, the goal scoring, just as you're saying, Rene, needs to come from you. Yeah, no, and you can see that, you know, and, 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 and that is what I think why... I think there's certain almost sort of... Um, guidelines around those players that Pat makes them very clear. When you get in this situation, then these are your options. When you get in these, you get these. But you, you, you've got so much diversity up front with the players that he has. And you've got Maras, you've got Gundogan, you've got uh, Bernardo Silva, you've got all, De Bruyne, Sterling, you know, all players with their own little quality. And the key is to making sure that those attacking players can play to their strength when they're coming into the attacking third. Uh, reading a, a piece you did for the coach's voice was very interesting. You were talking about Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo being suspended at the beginning of the 2008 season. And you went, you went at, in a way, excellent. I can spend some time with him now on the training ground. And that was the big season of transformation, wasn't it? He scored 42 goals and Ronaldo went from a very good player, maybe falls over a bit too easily, to being, wow, who is this player? 
what happened that season? What what role did you play, and what how did you help Ronaldo get to the next stage? Well, there was Mark in that particular time. Obviously, uh, Cristiano had a few a few seasons then already at United. He was he was getting more familiar with the Premier League and, and everything, and obviously. Loads of people have been very, very important for him, the strength and conditioning side of the game, making sure that he looked after himself, he was getting stronger. But for me, I felt looking at the season before that where he scored 23 goals and uh, analysing sort of his performances and the chances that he created, but also the goals he scored, but also the chances and the goals he could have scored, I thought there was room for improvement. And the main the main aspect of it was that I was asking Cristiano at the time when I was working with him or maybe with one or two other players was saying have you have you already set your new goals for the upcoming season and he says what do you mean this is why you scored 23 goals last season I assume you want to do better and if you want to progress and get better you I would assume you would want to score more than 23 goals and he says uh he says yes well what do you think he says well 30 maybe he says okay that's fair enough and he says, well, do you think? He says, well, I think 40. And he says, yeah, but that's almost double. I says, that's correct. He says, but we haven't really worked on anything yet. And I want to show you, because at the moment in time, the goals that you scored are fantastic, brilliant, this and that and the other. But there were opportunities that you could score goals who would be very, very important for the team and all that, but you missed them because of X, Y, Z. And that's what I would like to address. So I had about, you know, I don't know, in, in the three weeks that he couldn't play, I had about nine to 12 sessions with him. And it was a process of, one, bringing him from awareness to understanding, one side, and secondly, to making sure that he adopted a different attitude towards scoring. It was not about scoring the most beautiful goal of the season. It was scoring the amount of goals. And I had to make him you know, aware and understand that in certain particular areas of the goal, so I created a three-zone system in front of the goal, uh, so his sort of uh, approach to a finish would be far more effective than it had been before. And I said to him, he says, listen, every goal, every goal you're going to score in training, that attitude in training of scoring goals should not be any different than on, in, on the, when you're playing a game. So every opportunity you're going to get from now on in your career, at some point in your career, you've already scored that goal in training. The only thing you need to do in a split second is pull it from your hard disk. And then you know what your best is, because at the end of the day, it's always focus on the performance, on the execution, not on the outcome. So that was mainly, in a nutshell, the whole things that we did uh, on and off the pitch uh, in, in that particular time. So uh, he then started to realise he was scoring more goals. I think he scored 30 goals by the 28th of January, and we still had February, March, April in that season to go. So that's why he ended up scoring more than 40 goals. But that's brilliant. Pull it from your hard disk. And I would suggest as well, use a mantra from one of the greatest players from your country of all time, Dennis Bergkamp, which is, and Ian Wright told me that he told him this, when you have that opportunity, you need to go cold. He said so many average players speed up, go, oh, I'm about to score, I've got a chance. You need to go the other way, don't you, emotionally, and go dead cold. Pull it from the hard disk. I know what I'm going to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that is, that's what all the top Top performers do, you know, that's where teacup comes from, isn't it? Thinking clearly on the pressure, but that's when you do it. I mean, you know, people say, you know, all these things are, you know, the, the repetition. Improvement is all of coaching and, and, and it's all about repetition. You know, everybody knows about the 10,000 hours, you know, uh, practice makes perfect, practice makes permanent. They're all true. They're all true. You know, that's how you make your own luck. And then it's not luck anymore. 
it's because you've done it time and time and time again and you become so good at it that subconsciously you're already almost, you know, you're ready for what's coming. And then it's just a matter of doing the right thing. And when you look at Ronaldo now, I mean, he's physically still in amazing shape, but obviously he's not 25 anymore. And you watch him and he does play between the posts a little bit more, doesn't he? But that's just sensible, is it? That's just clever. And in a way, he's probably still thinking about or it's so ingrained all the things you worked on, what is it, 13 years ago now, that it's just it's just second nature. But I suppose my question is his ability to adapt his game underlines his football intelligence, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. But the one thing that you just mentioned there, Mark, is he is he has looked after himself, you know, as a as a professional and, and his body is incredible. I mean, I think his he's thirty-five now and his biological age is probably twenty-five still. His body type, but he what he has done is Cristiano has just adopted his game to such a point because he knows that in the game I only want to get into those goal scoring positions and score goals. That's how I am important. That's what I'm good at. I'm not going to look for you know picking up the ball and doing some fancy stuff and all this and that. He does he does what he has to do in build up layoff a ball or whatever, but nothing nothing spectacular. You you won't you won't see Cristiano picking the ball up and and bend it with the outside of the foot you know uh, around the back four and then somebody else can run onto it. That's not his game. He's really you know uh, specialised himself into become a box predator, and that's what he still is. And he's utilising uh, you know his energy to making sure because he knows that in every game, no matter what, I will get one, two, three chances always. He gets probably more, but one or two needs to be in the back of the net. Phenomenal. And then Ronaldo! Oh! What a goal by Cristiano Ronaldo! Sensational! The greatest marksman in the history of the Champions League with an absolute beauty! You've coached so many good players and you would have seen so many terrific players, maybe when they're 21, 22, and you might have thought, oh, they're going to be world-class and they do or they don't make it. What differentiates for you a very good player from a world-class player? Um, a world, a world-class player is a player that will always make the difference when it matters. A world-class players, I mean, if, 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 you, if you put it a little bit more in detail and you say, okay, what does a good football player look like? Then you need to look at, you know, his tactical qualities, you know, which comes again to, to awareness and understanding, his, his game intelligence. And if you analyse a top, top player, a world-class player tactically, 10 out of 10, they make the right decisions. You know, defenders, world-class defenders, they know when to go into a 1v1 duel. They know when to step back. They know when to support. When they build up, they know when to play the ball into midfield breaking lines. They know when to switch to play, etc. You know, and that's for the midfielders. They know when to switch to play. They know when to play it short around the corner. Attackers, they know when to go in 1v1. They know when to make the box runs, etc. So tactically, it's all about decision-making. Physically, world-class players, but most of players, especially nowadays, they all have peak fitness. You know, everything that helps them to get into peak fitness, whether strength and conditioning, diet, sleeping patterns, everything. But the difference they make on the pitch physically, you can see that very, because it's very tangible, is because through the pace, the strength, the stamina and agility. If you look at Ronaldo now, he's that those are the four elements for him 
where he definitely makes a difference. He's still very quick. He's explosive. He's very strong. He can, you know, he can still play two games on 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 a row. His stamina is fantastic, and he's still very very agile. Um, then you look at the mental side of the game. Do the players? They've got strong personalities and world class players. They have an enormous winning mentality. If you if you look at what I think, because sometimes I think the terminology world class gets abused, but if you look at the real world class players that I think that fit that you know uh, that title, all those players have won trophies, domestic trophies, cups, you know, international trophies, whether it be European Championships, World Cups, whatever. So there's an enormous winning mentality, and that shines through in their attitude. You know, they always they always drive the team. They always want to win. There are leaders on the pitch most of the time. And the last but not least is the tactical side of the game. Everybody, you know, you can't be a good footballer if you haven't got any basic skills. So you need to be good in your, you know, your passing range, long, short, your crossing, your shooting, your heading. But the real world-class players, they have that ability, what I've talked about before, especially in the midfield going forward, they have that ability to dominate the one v one you know, in the attacking sense. So uh, all that combined together is are the main the main key aspects of a world-class player. But if you put it really down to one thing, world-class players, they always perform and always make a difference when it really matters, when it comes to semifinals, finals, etc. Yeah, and, we, and we've seen that. We've been talking a lot about Ronaldo. We've seen that so many times. I'm always fascinated by the mental aspect as well, which you mentioned there, Rene. And, and I asked this to Roy Keane once. I said, how long did you celebrate winning a title for? I mean, honestly, you know, it's 24 hours, quite a long time. And it felt like it was. In other words, you know, you won the title on a Saturday. By Sunday night, it's gone. And I know Sir Alex was like that at the party in Moscow, wasn't he, when he'd won the Champions League? I think Rio Ferdinand tells a story that Sir Alex is already going, well, how do we win it again next year? And he's going, boss, can we not just enjoy this one? But that's why they're serial winners, aren't they? It's almost ready in a way that you don't want to celebrate too much because that invites in complacency. Uh, yes, but I also, I also, I also felt, and, and, and I can still remember, I mean, when, when you set out to achieve something, no matter big or small, you have to celebrate achievements. You have to celebrate success, no matter how small they are. Uh, and that, that doesn't, shouldn't lead to complacency. It should be the drug, you know, to get more, you know, it should be the, you know, the desire and the ambition to get more. Because once you've experienced success, once you've tasted success, you know, you, you want more. And, it, and, it, and, and you know what, Mark? It doesn't make a difference, small or big, because the taste is the same. The only thing is that the bigger the trophy, the bigger the occasion, you know, the bigger the achievement, the, the, the longer it will sort of linger around you. It's, it's, it's great. But I can still remember having seasons with Manchester United where we, we had an, a tremendous season winning, you know, winning the, uh, at that time, I think the Carling Cup we, or the Charity Shield, the Carling Cup, the World Cup, we won the league but we didn't win the Champions League. And, you know, it was a massive hangover, although you had a fantastic, successful season, you know, but not winning, you know, uh, uh, you know, you always tend to have to, to rem- remember yourself, remind yourself about the things that you won and you achieved. But I can tell you, you know, uh, when, when you don't achieve it, you know, uh, it has a massive impact, but both winning or not winning should lead to one thing, one, the one if you win is the desire to win it again. If you haven't won it, it's the, the desire to do it one better. So, and, and that was that was the common 
attitude and mentality that Manchester, that Sir Alex Ferguson instilled in Manchester United over so many years. What was your greatest moment at Manchester United, Rene? <laughs> my greatest moment was, uh, well, my greatest moment, first of all, that I've got the opportunity to work for such a fantastic, amazing club because, fairly honest, if I if I would have if I would have told my friends back in Holland at the time when I was eighteen, they said, "Listen, boys, you know when I'm uh, uh, in in uh, in two thousand and one, I'm going to work for Manchester United." That everybody would have said they, they put me in there, you know, <laughs> somewhere somewhere yeah. somewhere you yeah, don't want to go. Yeah. Somewhere to see uh, a doctor, yeah, yeah. So so that's been that's been amazing. But I mean, the the greatest moment uh, I can't really pick. One particular thing, because especially the time that I, I I had the opportunity to be the first team coach under the guidance of Sir Alex Ferguson, with a fantastic staff, you know, with with Mick Feeling, Eric Steele, Tony Strudick, everybody involved. It it was unique, and and I and I spoke to Sir Alex Ferguson after he retired about six months later, and we had a cup of coffee, and I told him, I says, you know why that this whole journey of those six years where we won four Premier League titles and went to three Champions League finals. We won one, we did this, we won that. It just felt unique. And and I said, the reason why it was so unique, because I, I basically was able to do everything that a coach wants to do because Sir Alec Ferguson delegated uh, almost everything. But the biggest thing was the trust he gave to your staff. And, and honestly, Mark, in that particular day where the demands were so high, every year was the same. We want to win the Premier League. We want to we want to go and win the Champions League again, or get as close as we can. We want to win the FA Cup and all that. That was that never changed. But I never felt, never ever felt any day of negative pressure. I never felt anxious. I've never felt uneased at, about something. And that was the biggest, biggest uh, credit and credibility to Sir Alex Ferguson. How we kept everything, you know, you know, ticking over in the right way. Everybody was doing what they had to do, what they were good at, and the players responded. And and for me, it was just every game again, a home game. You knew what you did in training. You just sat there. I just sat back and, and had a really good look. Are the players doing what we set out to do? Because I knew Sir Alex Ferguson would ask me 10 minutes before half time. you know, what about this? What about that? What do you think? What do you think? So you you actually are a coach, but you think as a manager, because you know you have to you have to sort of say, listen, now it's going great. You know, there's not really much what we need to change. Or if we do need to change, then you have to come up with the right suggestion that really, you know, is probably make it work. That says a lot about an atmosphere created that at a club with such massive demands, you never felt, you know, undue stress. You wanted to win, obviously, but that's that says something. Um, Rene, we say in this country, sort of a, um, a JFK moment. Where were you when John Ke- you learned about John Kennedy? I remember where I was when I heard Sir Alex was resigning. I was at Wigan. Wigan, I think they were still in the Premier League. I was at the DW Stadium and there was a whisper. And then it came through, he's going to step down. Where were you when you were told the news? I was at home. I was... <laughs> Oh, I, I was I was in bed actually, and uh, you know, um, not that it makes any any difference, but I'm a good sleeper, Mark. Um, yeah. You know, I never. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is because the bed bed is for sleep. I never read or I never watch TV or anything. So, but for some reason, I I heard a message, a WhatsApp message coming in, and normally I don't even look at it. It doesn't really, you know. But for whatever reason, I did, and uh, uh, it was somebody obviously that knew the work for the club and said. Well, I'm just, you know, curious whether you know anything about it. But we've, we've, I think the players had a golf day that day, 
And he says, you know, I've just heard some rumours coming through from the players that they think so Alex Ferguson is stepping down after you know the end of the scene. Have you heard anything? And I text him back. And that was about 11 o'clock at night. So now I haven't heard a thing. So I just closed it. Boom, straight away, I got another text message coming in from my neighbour saying, is it true? And then I thought, oh, there's something more here going on. What's happening? So I went down, opened my laptop, put, put, you know, put the news on and whatever. And there it was, you know, straight, straight in your face. You know, rumours of Alec Ferguson stepping down. So that was my first, when I really knew it. I never rang anybody after that, but obviously it became clear that something was happening because it was all over the radio and in the morning. So when I went to Carrington in the morning, then obviously you saw all the reporters, you know, lined up in, in, at Carrington and uh, et cetera. So uh, eventually in the morning he called us in, uh, myself, Mick Fielen and Eric Steele, and he then obviously told us the news. The players... I wish the players every success in the future. You know how good you are. You know the jersey you're wearing. You know what it means to everyone here. And don't ever let yourself down. The expectation is always there. So I'm going home. Well, I'm going inside for a while. I just want to say thank you once again from all the, from all the Ferguson family. They're all up there. 11 grandchildren. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, that must have been pretty shattering because you would know, being in football all your life, that the next person may not, and it transpired he didn't. He wanted his own his own team, David Moyes, to which he's perfectly entitled to do. But you must have thought then, right, this, this fantastic journey may be coming to an end at Manchester United. I didn't think it at the time because I, I couldn't really... I, I, we were still having games to play. So it was for me, I was sort of, OK, and these are the reasons why. Obviously, the manager felt a little bit, you know, apologetic, the fact that it, that it, that it got leaked out the way that it did because he wanted to say and speak to us first, which I can understand. Obviously, as, as all his reasons were very valid, you know, at some point in the back of the mind, you know that decisions are going to come some, someday, any time anyway. But I never really gave it much thought about, okay, how, how do we carry on um, as such? Uh, that just sort of, you know, evolved and unfolded sort of in the weeks and the months after. Um, but at some point, yeah, you start to think, yeah, okay, then, you know, it, it, might come, it might come to an end, unfortunately. Is it inevitable that both Arsenal with Wenger and Manchester United with Sir Alex, two managers who were there for such a long time and whose imprint and personality were all over both clubs. Is it inevitable that both have struggled to, to find stability? Hopefully Manchester United will now under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but he's the fourth manager since Sir Alex left and Arsenal have had one since Wenger. Is it inevitable that both clubs were going to take a bit of time to find their feet again? I think so. It, 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 it could have only um, probably worked out better if they would have, I think, managed to transition in a different way. So let's say uh, with Arsenal, obviously, it was a little bit of a, a situation where I don't think that our, that Arsenal and I was still ready to step down or to go. But if they would have sort of let, let's say, listen, you've been such a big, important part of the club, um, exactly the same as Alex Ferguson, which created a certain continuity and stability, we would like to let that, you know, carry that on. There's different trans, trans, uh, transformation strategies to do it. In both cases, Wenger went and Sir Alex Ferguson went and other people came in, and there wasn't really any sort of overlaps in terms of continuity and strategy. And that's how I think, obviously, when managers come in, they bring their own personality, their own 
you know, staff that want to create their own identity, etc. And and that has obviously been a big big problem for both clubs. Uh, and that's when you you see obviously the trends that we've seen over the last you know six seven years. You know Ole Gunnar Solskjaer well because you had a time in spell of the reserves and he'd play for the reserves when he was coming back from injury. How happy are you to see a character like him get a chance to manage Manchester United? It's fantastic. And 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 when when they first chose Ole to to bring him into the club, I could see all the reasons behind it because what what the biggest one of the biggest problems was that the fans started to sort of almost distance themselves from the from the club. The biggest problem why maybe the other managers, and I have to maybe leave it in the middle where has David Moyes been given enough time in that respect, but obviously you had Van Gaal, who's a big experienced player with his own identity, etc. Same with Mourinho. But at the same time, the hardest thing for Manchester United is to do is one, to be successful. Number two, to play attractive and attacking football. It's the most difficult combination to get together to end win and play fantastic football. And I think all those managers after Sir Alex Ferguson have, have struggled. Ola is trying to put that back into place because he knows what United should stand for on the pitch, should stand for off the pitch. But everything takes time. But the one thing that he's brought straight away is the association of something that the fans can associate themselves with. So in that respect, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a, really good, a really good move. Um, you know, and, and and I hope that the developments carry on as they do, and that they very quickly, you know, again, you know, are being really ready to compete for Premier League titles, because that's well, you what would Manchester imagine. Actually- they, yeah. Yeah, and you'd imagine this season's such a weird season, Rene, for all the reasons we know. And it looks like Manchester City are going to win it. But you would imagine that next season Liverpool will come again. Chelsea under Tuchel look very well coached. You would be expecting Manchester United like this season to be challenging hard City, Liverpool, United, Chelsea, possibly next season, Leicester. I th- I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure, Mark, that Ole will be disappointed and his staff that they are not closer to Man City at the moment. Because if you look to the points that they've lost, Sheffield United, West Brom, you know, and if you add those up and a team like Manchester United with the quality that they have, they shouldn't lose those games or draw those games. And if you look at it, they would have only be probably, what, maybe, maybe four, maybe three points behind. So they are still challenging for the title. So they're not far away. They're, very, they're, very, they're actually very, very, very close. And it's, and it's down to themselves at this moment in time why that gap is 10 points, not, not necessarily the opposition. So that is really not, not a big thing to overcome. You know what I mean? So um, I'm sure that they, again, they, they, they constantly will look into improving the team and bringing maybe some, you know, somebody extra in. Um, but if they, would have, if they would have sort of been a bit sharper, a bit more professional in those games, I think they would have been closer than they are, than they are now. Rene, let's just talk for a few moments to finish with about your life abroad. There are a couple of places I'm really interested to get your views on. India. We're talking while well, there's a test match going on between India and England in Ahmedabad. And you work there and I've been there. We all know that Indians adore cricket. But I know that they love football. And I know that there is a, a local derby in Kolkata, which can get 100,000 people there. Having managed there, what do you think the future of football in India potentially could be? It, it could be whatever they want it to be, Mark. And it all comes down to uh, financial support, creating the facilities, you know, for the young kids, for grassroots, to making sure that they get the right pathways, 
for those you know grassroots uh, football to develop in terms of the young kids, but also create the right environments for the right coaches to get involved. So they need to build that that wider base, and then you know creating different pathways, uh, elite pathways for young kids to come through to get in better environments and 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 to basically create professional careers. But it could be because they got the numbers game, you know, and 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 if they get it right in that in the bottom of the pyramid, you know, from as soon as as soon as let's say it's it's strange really because I'm involved with it with a project really uh, where where it's called football starts at home. There's a lot of research in in in, in done in Denmark is because a lot of parents can do a lot of work with young kids at home, but before they actually start to join in the club, and then you go from six on. So if you get it right in the bracket from three to let's say to fifteen, those are the most important things, and you create a wide base of a lot of kids playing in the right environment with the right coaching, then 100% they're going to they're going to produce they're going to produce really good good footballers and then they if they can then uh, establish a stronger, you know, a better and stronger league for a lot of Indian players because what really surprised me when I was there managing there were some really really good Indian players, really good Indian players. You know, f- you know, physically good, technically good, maybe tactically not as aware but that can come over time but there's definitely great potential and and are they good enough or would you want them to be exposed to playing in european leagues i mean are they of that standard some of them mm, i mean you would you, you could have a, a punt at maybe one or two to say you know if they bring them in early enough so they can really get used to it let's say they have you bring let's say you bring a really really talented boy in that you can see physically is good technically is really good let's say at the age of 16 you need to then give him, let's say, four years up to 20, really in the right environment, working with, you know, with the right players and the right kids. And then, you know, that that could work for sure. Um, but I think, obviously, you can see, I think that sometimes the, the national teams are a little bit of a reflection of what has actually happened in the, you know, in, 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 in the domestic leagues. And that's where they're still sort of, in my opinion, even in, in, in Asia, a sort of a C category country. If you look at, if you consider... Australia, Japan, Korea being A categories, then India would be a C category. I mean, interestingly, that Virat Kohli, the test captain, loves football. So this is not a situation, Rene, where, you know, the glitterati of Indian society aren't interested. He loves football. I know that. I mean, lots of them do. So you, in a way, you're, what I'm saying is I think you're pushing at an open door, aren't you, if you, in India when it comes to football, to try and take it to the next level? No, absolutely. There is there's massive, massive interest. I was at... Uh, Kerala Blasters at the time, and and one of the co-owners was uh, uh, Sachin Tendulkar, you know the, the the fantastic cricketer, and uh, you know I've met him a few times. What a what a wonderful gentleman! What a great guy! And every time, Mark, when we had to go and play home games, you know the the streets were lined. There were thirty, forty thousand people just trying to uh, line in the streets to see the bus go to the stadium. You know, and it was just a, a feast, you know, and 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 uh, you know, in the stadium. But the, the mentality of the of the fans is is slightly is slightly uh, uh, different, you know, uh, because I can remember because we played. I think it was uh, Northeast and Steve Koppel, who was the manager of Kerala Blasters the year before, before me, and we had to play. I think the first game it was the opening ceremony. And I think that the home fans they shouted louder for Steve Koppel than for myself, so you know what I mean. So it, you know, um, but that 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 but it gives a great atmosphere, really great atmosphere. It's an incredible pass. It's- 
It's a wonderful finish. And the Kerala Blasters are heading for a second successive victory. And they're going up to third place in the table. It's Wadu. All over the top of everybody and out of play. And it's another stunning victory for the Kerala Blasters, who trailed at half-time to Bernard Mendy's deflected goal. But in the second half, they have battled their way back into the match. And what about Australia? I mean, you're the assistant manager there, but obviously you can't go there for COVID reasons. I was in Australia when the World Cup uh, bids went in, when the announcement was made. So this was 10 years ago, I was there during an Ashes tour. And they really thought they had an excellent chance of hosting the World Cup next year. We know it's going to Qatar. They've got the infrastructure. You'd have seen it. They've got fantastic stadiums. Obviously, transport system is very good. Long way, but very good. Um, and they seem to have the A-League has been running for a good decade now. They seem to have a good a good base of players. What do you think the future is for Australian football? In, in, uh, in some ways, Mark, uh, it's funny because I think they have, at this moment in time, the best uh, national team manager they could have in Graham Arnold. And Graham Arnold, and I'll tell you the reason why, because Graham Arnold is a, is a former professional player, played obviously for the national team, played professionally in Holland. That's why I know him. And I got to know him obviously a bit personally a bit better when he came um, for his pro license to Manchester United at some point. Uh, and he stayed for a week and that's how I got to know him. And we stayed in touch after that. But the reason why I'm saying it is because Graham knows Australian football, but he also knows football abroad. He's worked under uh, various managers as the assistant manager under Goose Hiddink, on the Pimfabeg. He's been to the Olympic Games. He's been to World Cups. He knows, but he also knows what the problem is with the development of Australian football in general. Because football is still, soccer as they call it, the smallest sport with, you know, Aussie rules, with rugby, with cricket and everything. So it's a little bit similar to what's happening in the United States. They need to find a place next to those sports, not try to, to compete with them or be against them. They need to try to find a place. Now, the coronavirus, COVID-19, has been actually a little bit of a blessing in disguise at some point, really, because... A lot of A-League clubs have now had to tap in into the younger generation of young players coming through. Players that we selected for the under-23 national team to qualify for the Olympics because we both do the national team and the Olympic team basically just because we wanted to create more depth. So now there's a lot of young players playing. And what the A-League owners see now is, is that there's actually a lot of young talent on show. And that is what Australia needs to get back to because we all know the times of you know, the Harry Kewels and the Viducas and the Schwarzers, and they all played in the, in, the, in the strong leagues in Europe, you know, in Premier League, but also some in Germany and some in, in Holland and Belgium, really strong. That's not as much the case. So for us, for Graham and myself, to really build a strong national team that can compete against the strongest nations, you know, is, is a big challenge for us. Great, a great opportunity at the same time. But that's where we are. But Australia, they, they need to, and I think they're going to fund it. They've got a big budget coming up for, you know, development of football in, in Australia uh, through schools, through grassroots programs. Uh, obviously, the women's game is very, very strong, the Matildas. So that's all, that's all positive. So the only thing that we are struggling at the moment is how we're going to organise the remaining World Cup qualifiers in March and in June with still the, the, the strict uh, quarantine rules in place. That's going to be a, a really, really challenge. And maybe the other thing that COVID has done, as you say, is if by having to dip into the youth system, 
they're less, let's let's be honest, going for those European players who may well have played the Premier League. We're 35 now who are coming for a nice payday in the A-League, Rene. Let's be honest. Maybe that, that's ha- going to happen less as well, giving more opportunities to younger Australian players. Absolutely, because what the owners what the, what the owners see now hands on is that all those players that you just mentioned, you know, ones that are coming coming in their thirties and they're coming for a nice payday or a nice two seasons, you know, in Australia because it's a nice, a fantastic country to live in and play sports in and everything. But really, it stops a lot of young players from getting game time and, and getting through. When when we had to play the the Olympic qualifying tournament in Thailand last January, not this January, but in 2020, we had to select, I don't know, 80% of all those players were having no game time whatsoever in Australia. We had to try to mould them into a team to play you know, uh, so many games in such a short period of time in very tough conditions. You know what I mean? Luckily now, we can see all those players on, on show and it will definitely make sure that those owners will look I think will give more uh, opportunity to those young players. Rene, final question. Let's end where we started. If you don't like the Dutch football team, you don't like football as far as I'm concerned. You know, we, we can reel off 50 names. How confident are you that on a, I'm talking about the international level now, that Holland, after by your high standards a few rocky years after the World Cup final in 2010, it got a bit sticky. How confident are you Holland are on the right track? Um, it is in, in many ways they are on the right track I'm sure they are the only the only disappointing thing is, is and that's football because I really liked uh, Ronald Koeman as being the national team manager he's done a fantastic job he got them playing in a certain way um, sometimes I think uh, Dutch football at times and that's why it got a bit laboured it got a bit slow you know what I mean but he got that zip back obviously we have some incredible very good players playing in big leagues and big teams it's very important that Virgil van Dijk is going to be back and fit for the Euros. If he could be there, because you can see what an impact it has had on, on Liverpool, it will be exactly the same uh, for the Dutch national team. So you need your best players fit. We've got a lot of a lot of good players. Frank de Boer has picked up. Obviously, he had a little bit of a rocky start, but I think he's got them. He's got the where he wants them to be. And you know, I really think they could play a really really strong Euros. Rene, absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Really interesting stuff. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.